This is cool. Of course, I'm talking about the Dodgers winning, right? Yeah! Yeah. (laughs) You guys know I'm a big sports fan, so I had to throw that out there. (laughs) This week, I was thinking about how cool it is to see a lot of different colors. Um, I was watching some documentaries and and working through some things, and I thought, uh, I wonder what it's like to be Pastor Mike. He's got color blindness. Uh, he does, and you don't know this. I guess maybe this is the first time some of you are learning this. But Pastor Mike is colorblind, and so I started kind of feeling a sense of uh, sympathy for him. Like, man, he's missing so many cool shades and color. I don't exactly know how his works. There's a lot of different kinds of color blindness, but it got me to thinking about how awesome it is to be able to see. And then, of course, it led me down a rabbit trail on YouTube. And then I thought of a video that I wanted to share with you guys because it really hits you in the feels. All right, here we go. Don't cry. They're all yours. They're all yours. Let's see what it it does. So what do you think then? Look, people. He cried. That's awesome. Hey, come here. Come here, dude. Oh, that's happy for you. Oh man, that's tough. Okay. You and I don't really think much about the fact that we can see the full color spectrum because it's every day for us. We have this every single day. And yet when you see this, you're, you begin to realize the kind of emotional power that comes behind being able to see the full gamut, to see the whole picture and to not be missing any data. Got me thinking exactly about this sermon series, because in this particular series, uh, we are going to learn what it's like to wrestle with God over evil and suffering once more. We started last week, and really this is a different sermon series, but this is going to approach it from a much different perspective. We're going to look at the same series again, and for most of us, what it's going to be like is seeing a certain color spectrum, or, or rather, not being able to see the spectrum. You see, for a lot of us, when we think about evil and suffering, it's like, well, where's God? Well, what's he doing in the world? I don't know what he's up to. I can't see that. It's not that he's not there. It's not that he's not active. It's just that we can't see it. This sermon and the next couple sermons after this are going to teach us to see from a different spectrum. We're going to put on the glasses of God's activity and be able to see together what God is doing. There was a guy by the name of Habakkuk who dared to ask the question to God, where are you? What are you doing? And in the next three sermons, we're going to unpack all that God says to him, because God responded, and the ways that he responded back to God. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. But again, for most of us, we're colorblind, or rather we're God-blind to his activity in the world. And we're going to get a chance to see what this looks like up close and personal. We're going to start seeing in a new spectrum of faith, which by the way, This kind of faith is not blind faith. It's not close your eyes and hope for the best. It's not, you know what, God actually, he needs to apologize to you because so many bad things have happened. No, this kind of faith is a faith that truly sees the world for what it is. It's seeing more and not less. We're not closing our eyes in faith and saying, I I hope God does something out of this. It's a no, it's an unshakable, clear seeing of faith that makes it so that we can look evil in the face and walk away and know that God is still at work. 
We're going to have our eyes wide open. We're going to see more than we ever have that God is, in fact, who he says he is. He's perfectly good, perfectly trustworthy. Even in the moment we're experiencing deep pain, sorrow, and distress over evil. Pop quiz. In fact, here, this is a, this is a test for you. You're going to take a driver's test at some point. So here's the test, okay? Here's, here's the test. You ready for this? When do you put on a seatbelt? As soon as you get in the car, right? Immediately before you start driving. Why is that? Most people don't get in accidents in a parking lot, <laughs> sitting, you know, idling. You put the seatbelt on before you start driving. Here's why that matters. For a lot of you, some of the feedback I got was, you know, I'm not, I'm not suffering through evil, Pastor Rod. I'm not going through, you know, tragic, heartbreaking issues so this isn't really speaking to me. Like, I get what you're saying. It's heady and heavy, but I'm not there. That's not where I am. If that's you, and you're not the person who's going through difficulty right now, you're not suffering through some kind of evil or some kind of heavy situation, the time to put on a seatbelt is before you start driving. The time to fix a leaky roof is before the storm comes. You get my drift here? Now is the time to build the mental, spiritual structures that are going to help you endure when the pain comes, when the tragedy strikes. Because here's what I can tell you, it will happen. The South Orange County bubble is real and it is strong, but it is not impermeable. Your life at some point, I promise you, will suffer some kind of catastrophe, some kind of earth-shaking, earth-shattering, paradigm-shifting kind of experience, and you're going to have to recall, what do I know to be true about this? How do I think about this? How do I respond to this? You either figure it out now and build the structure of your spiritual house, or when the rains come and the storm comes your way, your, your faith shatters. There was a guy that this happened to. His faith did shatter. And tonight, I'm going to introduce to you little pieces of his story because it's important that you see that I'm not making stuff up. I tell you that there's a guy in Scripture that dares to enter into a place where I'm going to encourage you guys to enter. The title of the sermon is How to Pray Dangerous Prayers. And so what I want you to take away from the sermon is when tragedy strikes, when evil befalls, when suffering enters your life, and you start to ask yourself the question, how do I figure this out, God? I want you to do the semi-obvious thing but the thing that you might be least inclined to do, which is to lean into God, to pray, to trust his process. I'm excited for this book. It's only three weeks long. We're only going to spend three weeks in this book, but I'm, I'm, I'm loving this, and I'm loving it for you. Let's jump in together into the book of Habakkuk. If you don't know where Habakkuk is, uh, use your phone instead, perhaps. Type it in. You'll be able to easily, more easily navigate. Habakkuk is a minor prophet, so you know the major prophets, right? Um, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Uh, and then you have uh, 12 books of the Minor Prophets. Those 12 books were often seen together as a unit, but Habakkuk is one of those books that talks about uh, how we're to deal with, well, how Judah was to deal with the coming judgment of God. This book is awesome because it has so many parallels to today. You'll see it soon enough. Habakkuk chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Let's talk about when God is unfair. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Okay, two quick notes on this before we move forward. 
Oracle can be also understood to, to be a burden. So there's a synonym that you could use. You could say the oracle or the burden that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. The burden is a vision. It's something that comes to him and he realizes, oh no, this is what's happening. It's not just something happy slappy. It's a burden. And in this case, it is a really a truly a burden, oracle. And notice also that he saw it, okay? He's having some kind of vision that God is showing to him. That's, that's important and you'll see why in a, in a quick moment. Oracle that he saw, he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. And so justice goes forth perverted. Okay, here's the landscape. Habakkuk is saying, God, your people are running amok. In fact, you'll notice here that he says they're, they're into destruction and in violence. I'm seeing all this evil and you're not doing anything about it. I see strife. I see envy. I see the law of God being tossed aside. I see all of this. God, why will you not act on this? Doesn't it seem right with your character that you judge these people? Take care of this. Now stop and think for a minute and ask yourself if there's any kind of parallel in your life that you can see right away. Look, I'm not political. And maybe you are, and if you are, I'm not asking you to get in this conversation. I'm simply saying, if you just take a look at our country for what it is, and we're not Israel, we're not Judah, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, if you look around, it's easy to kind of share some of Habakkuk's burden. He's experiencing this sense of, God, do something. Look at all these people. Look what they're doing. Look what they're saying. Why do you just let me see this? It seems like you're not doing anything. The, pe the bad guys are getting badder and they're prospering. The good guys are being squashed. They can't do what they need to do. Uh, church isn't essential, whatever. God, why do you stand by? Now, there's, a, there's several things we can take from Habakkuk here, but here's what I really want to get to first. This whole series, again, when God isn't fair, when God's not fair to you, how should you respond? And I wanted to pull a, pa a page out of Habakkuk's playbook here and say the first thing that you ought to do when you experience God not being fair to you is exactly what Habakkuk's doing. And it's point number one, you ought to learn to direct your complaints to God first. Take your burden, take your vision, take your life experience, and don't drag it along the mud with all these other people and tell them about how awful life is. Take your burden to the Lord. Complain to the Lord. Let him hear this. Now, there's a right way and a wrong way to do this, obviously. But before we do that, I want to, be, again, introduce you to a guy who lost his faith. And you're going to see a few clips from this guy. His name is John Steingard. He's the guy that used to lead the Christian band called Hawk Nelson. Throughout this sermon, you're going to see small clips of his story. And I want to show you the first one now. Take a look at the screen here. For people like myself, like when I started struggling experientially with some of the, the sort of suffering questions um, and started digging into scripture, I found a lot of things that 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 were helpful and then i found a lot of things that made things so much worse <laughs> or so so it seemed like you know some of the the issues surrounding slavery in the old testament and god appearing to not only condone it but to command it one of the other things that i i noticed is in you know in genesis 3 talking about the expulsion from eden um it does sort of really explicitly appear that god cursed humanity with with suffering as a punitive measure 
um, it doesn't it doesn't seem worded to me to be the kind of thing where it's like this is a result of our I mean it is the result of Adam and Eve's actions but it feels punitive not not uh, a, like a natural result of their actions so I told you, I, when I look at you guys, I, I mean, I, I see John Steingart in the room. People that have been raised in the church, and they knew all the Christian answers, and he's confronted with evil, and you'll find out what evil that was soon enough. Confronted with evil, and instead of taking that to God, well, actually, no, let me qualify this, because he does take it to God. You heard him, right? I opened up my Bible. I wanted to see what God said on the matter, and then he found out all these issues in Scripture that really challenged him to the core. They tripped him up because he began to struggle, not just with the fact that he saw evil, but then even within the Bible, he began to say, well, hold on a second here. It seems like God is doing a lot of evil in, in response to our evil. He's all messed up. He's confused. He's struggling. And here's the thing, guys. I, I can't say that as a Christian, you're never going to have that kind of crisis of faith where you're going to struggle with God. It's not that, and this is why the sermon is important. It's not that Christians don't struggle with the things that God does, is that Christians lean into that and say, I'm not going to be afraid. I, I know what I know to be true, and I'm going to lean into this, and God, I'm going to trust you to get me through this. And again, as I said last week, it's not easy. It's not easy. But when you do complain to God, let's, let's, let's set some boundary markers here just so you can understand how to go about this. First, when you complain, complain with faith. And that's one key difference here with Habakkuk. In verse 2 of Habakkuk, he says, O Lord, and if you're looking at your Bible, the word L-O-R-D is capitalized L-O-R-D, which is a signal to you, the reader in English, that this is the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And so in verse 2, as Habakkuk's praying to God, he's saying, O Lord, and then he, he offers his prayer. That's an important marker for us because what that tells us is that he's not approaching God as someone who's accusing and charging him, saying, why don't you do what I say you should do? He's approaching with a sense of faith. It's a sense of confidence and trust. And that's exactly where many people go wrong. When you're tempted to put your fist in the air and charge God, you have to slow yourself down and say, okay, am I complaining the right way? Am I complaining in faith? Or am I being embittered toward God and allowing myself to go in places that aren't helpful? You see, God wants us to approach him. In fact, what's amazing about this book here is that God actually responds to Habakkuk. Habakkuk's complaining, and God says, well, let's talk about that. Let me, let me, let me draw you in. God has a knack for helping skeptical Christians skeptical Christians. Not skepticism, skeptical Christians. He's willing to draw us. And you remember, you remember Thomas? Thomas said to the, his brothers and his fellow apostles, look, unless I can put my finger in his side, I'm not going to believe. Until the Lord stands in front of me and I'm putting my finger in and out, I'm not going to believe. Now, if I was Jesus, I would slap Thomas upside the head and say, get, get out of my face, man. I'm done with you. <laughs> Go to the other church, Calvary Chapel. But instead, Jesus shows up right in front of them. I'm just kidding about Calvary Chapel. I like them. <laughs> Jesus shows up to Thomas, and he condescends. Go ahead, Thomas. Put her in there, right here. And what does Thomas do? Skeptical Christian falls flat on his face and says, what? My Lord and my God. His doubt was taken right where it needed to be, and God dealt with him. He humbled himself before God. God aided him. So there's two kinds of ways that you can do this, all right? When you complain to God, when you're praying those dangerous prayers and you're taking your, your, your complaints to God, recognize that there is, a, there is a faithless 
Now, a faithless complaint, complaining versus a faithful complaining. Faithless complaining is selfish. It demands God concede to him. Uh, faithless complaining has a love of comfort. God, don't do this to me. Why are you doing this? God, haven't I been good enough for you? God, why are you doing this to me? It's mine. It's whatever. It's selfish. It's self-focused, and it demands God to play by your rules. That's faithless complaining, whereas faithful complaining does have an agenda. It does want certain things, but what it wants is zeal and love for God. Faithful complaining has God as the the object of affection. Faithful complaining has God as the one that matters most in the equation. You can still ask, God, help me understand this. God, I I don't get why you're allowing this to take place. When my brother got cancer, he was a young buck. He was six years old, had a tumor in his stomach the size of a basketball. Some of you have heard this already. And so as a young man, I got to see my brother undergo chemotherapy and radiation therapy, and they gave him a, you know, you have eight months, maybe 12 months. He might pull through, but likelihood he's going to die. So I I went through a season of life where I thought my brother was done. He was done for. Consequently, uh, my family got into the prosperity gospel. And so I went to a Benny Hinn crusade, and I I I was buying it. I wanted to buy that because I wanted to see my brother live. So I went to the Benny Hinn thing, and my family and I, we went to the Benny Hinn thing, and we tried to get my brother up there and to see if I could get him to have Benny Hinn hit him with a jacket or whatever, because we really wanted, we really wanted my brother to stay alive. God healed him, but pretty confident it wasn't Benny. You see, as I look back on that, that specific time in my life, I can look back at that season of pain. I, I cried for my brother. I, I, I thought I was going to lose him. Again, he's alive. I'm thankful for that. He's married. But in that season, I, I, I was drawn near to God through a false prophet, to be sure. But I was drawn near to God because I'm like, okay, if, if this is the way we see him get saved and get, or get healed, then fine. I'll, I'll do that. Whatever I need to do. My, my, the pain that God put in my life was productive, even though it was through someone that we wouldn't agree with today, to say the least. You see, God uses pain, but uh, he and God uses suffering, but He wants to use it to draw us near to uh, to draw us near to Him, so that we're complaining not with a sense of comfort and demanding for our souls, but a sense of zeal and love for Him. We were ignorant, but we prayed. God healed my brother. He did it through the doctors and the chemotherapy and the radiation therapy and you know a lot of things. If you're going to complain to God, complain with faith, but also complain with patience. You, know, you might have noticed that in, in, in verses 1 and 2, where after he just says, Oh Lord, there's two words there that you might be able to resonate with. And it's the words, How long, Lord? How long will I have to deal with these things? How long will I have to cry for help? How long will you not listen? How long will you do A, B, C, and D? That's not unusual. Couple things I want to point to your attention. Number one, um, this kind of thing, asking God how long, it is not something that is foreign to the Christian, not foreign to someone who loves God. In fact, I would dare say that for those who are Christian, when you pray for your family members, you're praying for whatever it is that you really care about, it will seem like God is waiting eternity to answer your prayer request. What I'm trying to say is that as you think about this, as you think about Psalm 13, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? I might feel like that. How long will you hide your face from me? So it's not even like I feel like you're hiding from me. You're, you're making me wait. 
I'm not even getting the comfort of feeling your presence. It's like you're hiding. How long must I take counsel in my soul? I have to talk to myself because it feels like you're, you're not talking to me and have sorrow in my heart all the day. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? If you're a Christian, you need to expect not only that faith is going to have to influence the way that you pray and complain, but patience is going to have to mark a lot of what you do with God. Cancer, you're going to need to be patient. If someone in your family dies instantaneously, there's a terrible tragedy, you're going to need to be patient, I'm sure, because as you go through that grief process, you're going to have to ask God, God, why would you let this happen? God, this is my best friend, this is my mom, this is my dad, this is my sister, this is my whoever. God often doesn't answer the way that we want or in the time that we want. Pray with faith, pray with patience. And one more thing, I want you to pray with caution. I'm using the word complain, and I know for most of us it has a negative connotation, and for, for most of us it should, because it is a negative word. But complain is a, a biblical category. We just typically use the word lament, lament. Lament is a type of prayer or song toward God that is sorrowful. It's asking God, why? <laughs> why aren't you doing this? And, there, and that fills up about a third of the Psalter. But when you complain to God, you'll have to notice that as even Habakkuk does this, it's not the kind of complaint that charges God with wrongdoing, but it seems to get pretty close. Take a look here. Look at verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? In other words, God, you're behind this. I recognize your sovereignty. You're, you're in charge. I'm looking at bad stuff, and you're making it happen. Why do you idly look at wrong? God, why are you not acting as you should, it seems to say. Destruction and violence are before me, striving attention arise, laws paralyzed, justice doesn't go forth, wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. It's almost like he dances around the idea of, God, you should be doing something. Almost charging God, but not quite. I think Habakkuk's a godly dude. And what I want you to know from what Habakkuk is saying here is that as you approach God, it should be a sense of cautious, uh, careful speaking toward him. You, you never should get to the place of having this sense of, God, you're guilty for something. God, you're wrong for something. But I do want to point something out here. This kind of activity, I struggle with this word, but I'm going to say it because I feel like it gets closest to what I'm trying to say to you. This kind of response toward God is normal. Normal in that, I could say it this way. If you are never uncomfortable with God, if you're never offended at God, chances are you have formed a God in your own image. Pretty likely. If you never have uncomfortable feelings about what we preach from this pulpit and about how God expects us to live, act, and think, you're probably not dealing with the real God unless you're perfect. If you're Jesus, okay, fine, you're off the hook. But for the rest of us mortals... When, when the word of God confronts us like this, this kind of response is somewhat normal because it, 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 it helps awaken us to this reality. I don't see what you're doing, God. I don't get you. You're in a different category. I get that, but I can't reconcile what you're telling me in your word with what I'm seeing in the world. This kind of cognitive dissonance of saying, I know what's true, and yet uh, my, 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 my vision here is different than what I think it should be. I know it's true, but it doesn't match reality for me. That cognitive dissonance is somewhat normal. And so oh, what, you should, uh, what you should get from this is that you will be challenged by God. You should be challenged by God. And therefore, when that challenge happens, you shouldn't confront God and say you're wrong, but you should rather say, God, I, I don't get it. Be honest about that. But recognize you need to be cautious 
Never charge God with wrongdoing. Complain with faith, patience, and caution. As we prepare to talk about the unfairness of God, when God's not fair to you, I'm encouraging you to do what any pastor would do. Pray. Lean into God. Go to him. Take it to him. And let him begin to wrestle with you as you wrestle with him. He's gracious. In fact, it's amazing because in this case, God actually answers Habakkuk. Now, remember his, remember his charge. Why do you sit idly back, God? Why don't you deal with these people that I'm telling you about? Your people are acting like fools. Please deal with them. But I'm guessing after this occasion, he's probably feeling like he, he wished he hadn't said that because here's what God says. Look at verse five with me. Now, remember, Habakkuk says, look, God, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you make me uh, look at all these things? And then God responds back with essentially the same thing. Look, look among the nations and see Habakkuk. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, look, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Chaldeans is another word for the Babylonians. That bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They're a conquering people. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. In other words, they are a law unto themselves. They don't, they don't abide by anyone's law. They are the law. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press on proudly. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. Predatory animals, fast animals, they all come for violence. All their faces forward, they gather captives like the sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth to take it. They besiege places, set up a lot of dirt right over the, the, the wall. God's response to Habakkuk, the last line says, Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Wowzers. God, Habakkuk, God, why don't you judge these people, deal with these people? God says, okay, you want to know what I'm up to? Let me tell you. I'm going to take some of the worst people that are known to mankind at that point in time, and I'm going to use them to take out Judah. Do you want to answer that? Do you want to pray for this, Habakkuk? Great, here's the answer. I'm going to use a wicked people to hurt hinder, in many ways, destroy the people of God. Not fully, of course. We know that. But at the time, Habakkuk's hearing this. Can you imagine the kind of feelings that he went through? Hold on a second. I didn't mean that. God, no. No, don't do that. Then God, really, anything else. Don't do that. Why would you do that? (laughs) Here's what I want you to know about God. And I think this is a really good example for this. Point number two, I put it like this. Expect God's answer to defy your small imagination. Expect God's answer to defy your small imagination. Be careful what you pray for. Be careful what you pray for because God's answer will likely defy your small imagination. I don't mean to be uh, in any way <laughs> um, insulting, but of course we're talking about God versus you. God's going to have a lot more creativity in his approach to answering the prayer request that you, that you have. I've been watching some uh, Disney Plus lately and I've got really hooked on the show called Weird But True. I've been loving it. My kids like it, I think, but I love it. 
talks about sciencey type things, you know, fascinating stuff about creation and creatures and all that other things. And so I started, again, going down another rabbit trail about different strange but true facts. Um, and so I found a couple about the human brain. Now this, I, I mean, I love neuroscience. It, it floats my boat. Check this out. Here's a couple. And here's a sweet graphic to, to, to look at while I say these things. <laughs> here's a strange but true fact. You can see through your ears. Okay, that's not the full truth. That's just the headline. 2011, a study published by the So-and-So Academy of Sciences uh, said that uh, they compared the brain activity of individuals who were born blind and those who had normal vision. They found that the part of the brains that's normally wired to work with our eyes can instead rewire itself to process sound information instead of visual perception. In other words, your auditory signals can be transplanted or transferred to, uh, to the visual receptors of your brain. So like when blind people hear, they're actually composing a picture around them. It's fascinating, amazing. Here's another one. When you're awake, your brain produces enough electricity to power a light bulb. Gets even cooler than this, though. Neurons in the brain do make enough electricity to run a light bulb, but 100 billions of, a cell, 100 billions of cells generate this amount of energy. And the brain works fast, so fast that it's speedier than the world's greatest computer. The information going to your brain from your arms and legs travels at 150 miles per hour. Amazing. Your brain storage capacity is virtually unlimited. I think most of us knew that. You never actually get to the end of your ability to learn is what that one says. And last one, super cool one, your brain, the, the brain waves of two musicians can synchronize when performing together. Um, and they go on to say not only your brain waves, but even your breathing and your heartbeat. Like when you're playing a song together with someone, your, your whole body synchronizes to the person, including the way that your brain signals are sent. Amazing. It's those kind of things that make me say, Lord, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And yet it's that very thing about us, that intelligence, that beauty, that, that kind of that genius that God has implanted into us that makes us so incredibly dangerous because we begin to think in ways like this. I saw suffering that I had maybe seen photos or videos or heard, heard stories of before, but when you're confronted with it in person, it's different. And, you know, so many of, of the people that were suffering are these young kids that are, you know, I had just recently become a father myself. And so I was seeing my son in the faces of these kids, you know? And um, I, when I encounter a kid who gets found naked and alone and crying in the forest, that's how they find these kids. Mm -hmm. and, and I experienced that and, and it became very difficult for me to reconcile the idea of a loving, powerful God with the things that I saw there. Mm. Um, and and it, I, I think sometimes when I tell this story, people get the idea that I became angry at God, and, and that's not how I felt at all. H how I felt was just that, wow, like given what I see, the idea that God is not there is a much better explanation to me. Uh, than, than trying to make sense of how a loving and powerful God could allow something like this. That's. Did you catch his language? It makes more sense to me that there isn't a God rather than a good, loving God, powerful God exists. See, and that's the thing. We are so incredibly intelligent and brilliant and God has deposited within us this incredible genius in many cases that when we start to survey the landscape, it's so easy for us to make ourselves bigger and put God smaller. It's easy for us to think of ourselves as like, man, I, I should be able to understand this. And if God isn't powerful enough to make this work the way that I think it should work, then certainly God doesn't exist. Or it's just easier not to believe that. 
And all I can say to that, guys, is just how arrogant can you be? How do you expect your three-pound mass of fatty tissue in the upper part of your cranium, how do you expect that to fit God's thoughts? Let's talk through this really quickly here. One of the things that happens when, when, we, uh, when we ask God to, to answer certain prayer requests, I, I think sometimes we, we put ourselves in the position of saying, well, certainly if God were to give me an answer, I would understand it. I would fully comprehend the, the, vast, uh, the vast thinking of God easily. It shouldn't be a problem for me because I'm super smart and intelligent. But you have to remember, God is not like us. God exists eternally. In fact, that's one of the, the perspectives that we often miss, is that God is operating e- from an eternal perspective. And we are not. We are often lacking in that. We see the, the, the world in front of us. We live in days and weeks and months and years where God is timeless and eternal. That's why it's so important. I'm kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek here using this as my title, but uh, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Listen to this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. In other words, don't expect to fully understand and comprehend my thoughts. I'm God. You're the creature. We had this discussion a little bit last week. God is creator. You're the creature. And so therefore, there's going to be a, a wide chasm of how God thinks, how God processes, and how we think and how we process. God is working with far more resources than our limited lives can see. Think about time, wisdom, intelligence. Young person, I, I need you to think about the complaints that you have toward God, the, the evil that you see in terms of eternity and per, eternal perspective. You and I have 80 years here, give or take, right? 80 years. Do you think in your 80 years of time, you might have a few answers to the prayers that you've answered, that, that you ask God? You might be able to see a few things and even hazily at that, hazily, like, ah, oh, I asked God to save this person and maybe it's your younger brother or sister. And so you die and they're still alive, but you die never seeing them come to faith in Christ. Your 80 years is up. But how much time does God have? How much time does God have? God's working all of history out for his glory and for your good. You need to have an eternal perspective on this. But also, don't forget that your prayers are personally going to be costly here. Habakkuk prays, judge these people, Lord. They deserve it. They need to be saddled in. They need to be corrected. And then... (laughs) And then God says, okay, I'm going to correct them. I'm going to send the Chaldeans your way, and they're going to ransack the whole area. What do you think about that, Habakkuk? I'm sure Habakkuk was saying, oh, man, that's, that, that's going to hurt. It's going to hurt me. I'm sure Habakkuk has friends and family members that he knew that are going to be directly affected by this, and even him personally. He could have lost his, his own life in this season. Oh, no. But when you pray to God and you're complaining, understand that if, if you're complaining about a certain aspect of what you see God doing, he's probably going to use you in the answer to that prayer. And it's going to cost you. It's going to be something that you're going to have to put forward. God's going to call you to be one of the answers to your prayer requests. <laughs> someone, I was talking to someone the other day, and we're praying for like, patience. Like, yeah, I've been praying for patience, and uh, I, I haven't seen the kind of growth that I wanted to see. In fact, I've noticed that there's a lot more situations that are challenging me. And I said, well, if you're praying for patience, you're seeing all those challenges because God's given the opportunity to strengthen that patience, to grow in patience. If you're praying for assurance of faith, if you're praying because you're not sure if you're a Christian, understand you're going to be challenged in your faith so that you can be strengthened in it. If you're praying for the salvation of a friend, understand God's going to use you 
more often than not, as one of the answers to that friend's request. And that might mean you, you taking them and going with them through a lot of difficulty and a lot of trials, which is one of the reasons why we're doing this series in the first place. I need you to be equipped to know how to handle someone who's struggling in their life, including you personally. James says it this way, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Your difficulty will produce in you something good. In fact, young person, I don't know if there's anything in life that you will ever gain that is not worth having that doesn't come at a steep, personal, painful cost. Your sanctification included. Lastly, and we touched on this last week, let's touch on this again. We don't understand how evil is in keeping with God's purposes. Let me add two things to your, your, your thinking here. Two specific elements that make it difficult for you to comprehend God's use of evil. Two Fs, okay? Two Fs. Here they go. Um, the first F that makes it difficult for you to understand how God can use evil is your own personal F, fallenness. Your fallenness. Your sin makes it so that your brain doesn't work as well as it should. Now, I'm not saying that when you die and go to heaven and you're fully glorified in your new body, that that necessarily means that you'll understand everything about God, but your fallenness makes it a greater challenge than you realize. You are fallen, and therefore, your sinful state pollutes your ability to think the way that you should. That's the first F, you're fallen. The second F is this, you're finite. Because you are grounded to time, you have, in many ways, an inability, a handicap, if you will, to see things as you should, the whole perspective. Only when, by God's grace, we grow into that perspective are we able to say, okay, God, you're doing things bigger beyond me that I can't fully comprehend. I can trust you in this. Finite, fallen. Those are two Fs that keep us from really wrapping our minds around God's use of evil to accomplish his good purposes. We'll return to that again next week. Let's continue on here to our last point. Keep in mind here, Habakkuk asks the question, God, why haven't you judged them? God answers and says, oh, I'm going to judge them. And it's going to come swiftly. The, the, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they're coming and they're going to bring destruction. Habakkuk now responds because he's confused and he's hurt by this, whole, by this answer. He says, well, hold on a second, God. Hold on, hold on. Are you not from everlasting? O oh Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O oh Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O oh Rock, have established them for reproof. You, who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He carries on. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them into his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. He's characterizing the Babylonians by saying, look, they're like fishermen. They're just gathering a bunch of people up and treating them like, like, like fish. And then not only that, but the Babylonians, then they sacrifice to their nets and they make offerings to the dragnets. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? God, how could you, how, how does it make sense, God, that you could be pure and everlasting and holy and yet use this wicked people to judge the people that are better than them? Tell me, God, how does that work? And then this is kind of funny. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. And I'm going to look out to see what he will say to me. 
And then I'm going to think about how I'm going to answer when he rebukes me, essentially. <laughs> I started on this earlier. Let's make this a point now. One of the, the issues that Habakkuk makes clear for us is that when God tells us, here's the truth about who I am, the temptation is to recoil and say, oh, I, I, oh, I don't like that. Temptation for us at that point is to either surrender, to submit to God's, to God's truthfulness of who he is, or to say, you know what, I would prefer a different kind of God. I would prefer to create a different God. Point number three, you better avoid the temptation of forming God in your own image. See, even though Habakkuk hates the answer, he submits, and you'll see that through the book. But your choice at this point is as you see the evil on the horizon, as you see suffering and wickedness abound, your choice is do I want to submit to God and understand that he's ruling the universe, perhaps in a way that I don't like, but he's still the God of heaven and of earth, or do I choose to make a God of my own image? A lot of people do this, make a God in their own image. Latest polls, um, religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not objective truth. Lots of people agree with that. That's most Americans. This gray color here is for Christians. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Lots of people agree with that too. That's within the church. Not this church. I hope the numbers would be different for our church. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 52% agree. You see, people are, are willing to, to do a, a menu of, of Christianity. Say, I'll take this, I'll take that, I like this, I like that. You can't do that because at that point you become the arbiter of truth. You become the God of your own life and that's when the danger is. However, the true God, and this is where you need to understand, the true God uses evil unfairly, put that in air quotes, and yet remains good. God uses evil unfairly and yet remains good. I mean, think about it like this, young person. Imagine that God came to you in a dream tonight and said, you know what, I'm just going to let you know uh, I am going to let Kim Jong-un destroy America. He's going to send several nukes our direction. Millions are going to die. Uh, it might be you too. You should prepare for that. How might you feel about that? It's a similar situation here. God is using a wicked people to judge a more righteous people. And I guess maybe for some of you, you may not think America is actually more righteous than, than North Korea, but whatever, you, you get my point. God uses evil unfairly and remains good. Let me show you how Habakkuk deals with this really quick. Habakkuk takes this information in and notice how he starts. Are you not from everlasting? He affirms God's eternality. God, you are uh, from, from the beginning to the end. You're different than me. You're outside of time. Uh, you are, uh, you are the, the one who sees all things. You get it. And not only that, you're the Lord. You are God. You're all-powerful. You're omnipotent. You're all-knowing. You're everything. And not only that, you're holy. There's nothing about you that is imperfect. You're righteous. You're all good. I get that. And not only that, when he says we shall not die, he's essentially saying, oh, didn't you make a covenant with us? Didn't you promise that we would be as numerous as the sands on the sea and the stars in the heavens? Did you tell it to Abraham? We're not going to die. You're going to protect us, right? <laughs> and not only that, you are the judge. You've ordained them as a judgment. You, you the rock, have established them for reproof. He, he affirms all the things he, know is true, he knows is true about God before he enters back into God. But look what's happening. How does this make sense? This is hard. This is hard. 
God does use evil. And I'm going to use the term unfairly. And the reality is nothing is unfair in the grand scheme of things. God does what he pleases. And God's never going to say, well, you're right. I, I should submit to your standard of goodness, rightness, or wrongness. God does what he pleases. God is sovereign. God makes the rules and God remains perfectly good. Not only that, God uses wicked people as his instruments. God uses wicked people as his instruments. Perhaps one of the best examples of that is in the case of Pharaoh. Pop quiz, who hardened Pharaoh's heart first, God or Pharaoh? Incorrect. God did. Exodus 4.21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Let that sit on you for a second. Don't want to dismiss Pharaoh. Pharaoh, like I told you last week, we, we, we talked about the term concurrence, right? One means it for evil. God means it for good. Look at how Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 15. But when the Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. God says, I will harden his heart. Pharaoh says, well, essentially, Scripture says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But lest you forget... One of the last passages about Pharaoh and God's use of, of him in Exodus 14 says, For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. Verse 4, God says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians, Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Again, I want you to feel something of what I'm feeling right now as we read these passages. If you're never uncomfortable with God, if you're never offended at God, it's because you've probably made God in your own image. It's passages like this, young person, that we must take seriously and say, okay, if God is who he says he is, if God is truly sovereign, and my willingness to submit myself to him because according to his word, he is still perfectly good. How he coordinates these things, how he remains unstained at something like this, I don't know. I don't, I don't get it. But I can say I'm a finite and fallen human being. I don't see the whole picture. God, you are holy, you are righteous, and I bow at your throne. You are king and I am not. This is hard. But this is faith at work. We look at this and we say, God, you're righteous, you're just. You know what you're doing. I'm a third-party spectator. I barely know anything. Lastly, the true God rewards humble and scrappy faith. And that's what I like about Habakkuk. He doesn't back down quickly. He comes back at God and says, hey, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to wait. And I'm going to wait for you to, to answer. And then I'm going to think about what you're going to say to me. And then perhaps uh, what I might respond to that. Habakkuk's not finished. Next week, when we enter back into this book, you're going to see Habakkuk. Uh, well, you'll, you'll hear what, what God says and then how Habakkuk responds. This is an incredible book. And you're not going to want to miss this. But I can tell you right now, Habakkuk is scrappy. He's not giving up. He might have been hit really hard with God's right hook, but he's not laying on the floor. He's staying in the game. Habakkuk doesn't become an atheist. Habakkuk doesn't throw away his faith. 
I wish I could say that for everybody. Was up in the mountains and it was just gorgeous. And I remember having that thought like this beauty, how, how could this just be random? Then thinking about the person of Jesus, like you brought up, I, I mean, I, I find myself, this is one of the things I've contemplated over the, the last you know, six or eight months or a year, is that if God, an unlimited, uh, all-powerful, all-loving being, if he could create reality to be whatever he wanted, then why would he create a reality in which it was necessary for his own son to suffer and die like that? Um, now, now, it could be that he just understands suffering better than I do. Like, that is a plausible answer. Um, but it, it, it sort of stands to me to, to like, it, it's, it's difficult for me to explain uh, why, why God would make it difficult for me to explain why God would make it that way. And to that, I could say amen. That's difficult. It's challenging. And yet for a lot of us, I think you may not feel totally comfortable with that. Some of us, you know what this is, right? Some of us would prefer God to be like this. God, should I go to USC or Oh, good, I don't want to go there anyway. God, should I date this person? Yeah, I probably shouldn't. A lot of us treat God this way. Cheap, plastic, easy answers, doesn't move, not dynamic. But see, we can't treat God in these plastic, rigid, easy believism kind of ways. God is infinitely complex. He's the Lord. He's perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. Truth be told, you don't want a God like this. This cheap knockoff is not a good replacement to God. When the hard times come, when the evil accosts you, when the evil comes your way, when the suffering comes, what you really want is a God who's strong, mighty, and has it all under control. Not a magic eight ball God. want you guys to learn to lean into God with your difficult questions or difficult thinking about the world around you. And just like John Steingart said, the answers are not easy. It's hard. And I affirm that. It is hard. But that's okay. See, because God is big enough to handle our hard questions. He proved himself over and over again. And again, the biggest and best way that he proves himself to be trustworthy is exactly what he does on the cross for our sins. Again, the greatest evil committed against anyone in all humanity is Jesus sent to the cross, the perfect lamb of God being lifted up on the cross, executed, humiliated, naked, bloody, and bruised for your sake and for mine. And yet God uses that. Tonight, as you guys have your discussions, I really hope that you lean into some of the difficulty of this conversation. Obviously, I think it's an important topic, and we're going to continue with this topic for the next couple weeks, so get used to it and be ready to have some challenging conversations. Don't expect easy answers. Expect some challenging, thought-provoking, heavy answers as you work your way through it tonight. Let me pray for you, and I'll let you guys go. Mm -hmm.